0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. If you remember, this chapter is intertwined with two themes, uh, the identity of Jesus and the nature of discipleship. And last time we were in this chapter, we looked at uh, the first verses 1 through 6 and 10 through 17, looking at the nature of discipleship. And this morning we're going to be looking at the identity of Jesus as we see it in verses 7 through 9, 18 through 22, and 28 through 36. Let's give our attention then to God's Word. This is His living, inerrant Word. It's dynamic and living. Uh, God uses this Word uh, to feed His sheep, to build us up, to convict us, and show us the beauty and glory of Jesus, and that's what we're looking for this morning. So verse 7 of Luke chapter 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And then we have the feeding of the 5,000, and then we are to go to verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And if you look at verse 28. Now about eight days after saying these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. We have been noting as we have been going through the Gospel of Luke what an amazing thing it is to be a Christian. It is an amazing thing to have all the blessings of salvation given to us. It's amazing to have our sins forgiven even though we don't deserve that it's amazing to be granted eternal life it's amazing to know that God is with us to comfort us in sorrow uh, he's given us a meaning and purpose in this life and a future in life that's yet in the life that's yet to come. but the most amazing thing about being a Christian is undoubtedly Jesus uh, Jesus is the most amazing part of being a Christian, right? We the, the, the most astonishing thing is that you, if you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus. He's claimed you as his own. You are loved by him. You are caught up in his purposes in the world. You are destined for an eternity of being with Jesus, reigning with Jesus. Unfortunately, that is a truth that many of us just, forget, uh, that we just overlook. And even as I say it, that truth will just be old news to you. It will not be glorious to your soul unless Jesus is glorious and magnificent in your mind and your heart. Many commentators have noted that uh, the the version of Jesus that, that we have in American Christianity is a small Jesus. It's a Jesus that's been modernized and sentimentalized and commercialized. He's user friendly and he's useful to uh, help you pursue the American dream of having a good life, uh, achieving one's full potential. But the American Jesus is not the biblical Jesus. And the evidence can be found right here. The American Jesus, for whatever you can say about him, the American Jesus is not awesome. He's not glorious. The American Jesus exists to help you deal with life and to feel better about yourself. The real Jesus makes you forget about yourself as you are captivated with awe and overwhelmed by the glory, the weight, the significance, the majesty, the beauty of the true Jesus. If you've never felt awed by Jesus, if you've never felt in some strange way afraid of Him and yet irresistibly drawn to Him, if you've never bowed down simply because you had to, you may have only a dim knowledge of the real Jesus. Whenever you find the glory of Jesus being revealed and manifested in the Bible, you find people afraid, awed, overwhelmed, and bowing down, and yet irresistibly drawn. That's the real Jesus. And that's the Jesus that Luke wants us to meet this morning. He wants us to see the glory of Jesus. The whole, uh, the verses that we've read, they're all about who, who is this man? Herod asks the question, who, who is this guy? Jesus asked the question, who do the crowd say that I am? Who do I say? Who do you say that I am? Um, the father affirms the identity of Jesus. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is a text about knowing Jesus. Now, one of the problems with doing, uh, just preaching these texts is that you've heard these stories before. Um, you've heard sermons on these stories. I just want to ask you, do you ever remember being moved by these stories? I mean, I have to confess that as I was thinking about that from my own life, I, I remember being intrigued by these accounts. Um, I remember being, you know, the story of Peter is always good. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You will never go to the cross. Get behind me, save me. that's, That's a a memorable story, but I don't remember being greatly influenced or moved by these stories, and the reason that's notable is that it's because the apostles clearly were deeply moved by these events. The transfiguration of Jesus specifically was a defining moment in their realization that the gospel is outrageously true. So John begins his gospel, the word, the logos, that which was from the beginning, that which God of God, light of light, very God of very God, he became flesh and dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us, and we've seen his glory, and the rest of the gospel account is going to be written to explain the glory of Jesus, so that you might believe in him and and have life in his name. I'd like you to turn, if you would, quickly to 2 Peter chapter 1 because it had the same impact on Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Way to the back of your New Testament. Peter's second letter, chapter 1. And Peter's point here is that the Mount of Transfiguration proves that the gospel is not a myth, it's not a fable, it's not a devised story. Look what Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The transfiguration had immense impact upon those three men particularly, and they, uh, Peter goes on to say, so I just want you to know, these things are not made up. This is a certain words, not a religious story. The questions that are posed for us here in Luke chapter 9 are the most essential questions, the most essential question of human history. There is no more important question than who is Jesus. It's the defining question of your life. Who do you say He is? Not just sort of um, uh, cheaply, quickly, easily, regurgitating what you heard as a child? Who do you believe Jesus is? The voice that comes from heaven lays down the fundamental principle. This is my son. Listen to him. If you want life, listen to Jesus. And so that's what we have before us. Jesus has been carrying out his ministry for three years. There are all sorts of People talking about him. They know he's not just another rabbi. No one has ever done things like Jesus does them. Herod's perplexed. He's killed John the Baptist, but now here's another one who seems even greater maybe than John. Who is this man? And we can assume we know the answer and so miss the question because, well, we just, we know this. He's a son of God. But our familiarity with the question can easily numb us, you see, to the, the shocking, outrageous nature of it. Boys and girls, Imagine I was holding in my hand something that looked kind of like a candle. In fact, it was lit on one end, but it didn't look exactly like a candle. So you said, well, what are you holding in your hand? And, and I just casually replied, oh, it's a stick of dynamite. You would look at me funny, and you would conclude either I'm joking or I have no idea what dynamite is and what is about to happen because you can't hold a a stick of dynamite that's lit in your hand and just casually talk about it. Well, many people profess to know who Jesus is, and yet they profess with that same contradiction, that same casualness that reflects that Either they don't really believe what they're saying or they don't know what they're saying. Luke 9 is intended to shock us with the stunning reality of the identity of Jesus. Who is he? Let's look first at Peter's confession, then secondly, Jesus' instruction, and third, the Father's assertion. Peter's confession. Great story. Jesus has the men together. He asks them the question, who do the crowd say that I am? And the the answers come, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets of old, risen from the dead. Everybody's got an opinion. Uh, you can just imagine the crowds debating this, discussing this, arguing about the nature of Jesus' identity. People are talking about it. But isn't it strange that no one has conceived the actual truth? Isn't it interesting that the disciples don't say, you know, this sounds crazy, I know, but some people think you're God. No, nobody says that. Even though Jesus was doing things that only God could do, you you don't just create bread out of nothing and feed five thousand people. If you're a great rabbi, you don't talk to wind and water, and it listens to you. They heard Jesus say things only God could say. Your sins are forgiven. You, in fact, they charge him with blasphemy. You, you act like you're God. And he says, well, what's more difficult to say? Your sins are forgiven you or rise up and walk? And so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I tell you, rise up and walk. And the man did. Just right there in front of their face. Jesus uses I am language before Abraham was I am. He's calling himself God. God. And yet, in spite of the overwhelming evidence of who he was, no one connected the dots. They're all operating in a spiritual fog. They're throwing out this idea, that idea, but, and the next, but, but no one really is connecting the dots. Now, why is that? When the evidence is so overwhelming? Well, it's because, you see, we are, sin has corrupted our, corrupted our mind. We don't think straight. We see what we want to see and, we, and, and uh, what we're willing to see, and we refuse to see what we don't want to see. And by virtue of the fall, men are, we call it the noetic effect of sin, that sin has affected our ability to think. We're natively disinclined to accept the things of God. So Paul even says the, spirit, the natural man cannot accept the things of God. It's foolishness to him. And so, you, and so people live in God's world and they have the evidence of the reality of God all around them and scientists will study these things and, and the, the reality of God's divine nature and his power just screaming at them and they'll say, you know, I, I, think, I think Martians or aliens probably did this. PhDs. How do you explain that? Sin has affected our brain. And that's true of everyone. No one natively, naturally sees things as they really are. And so when Jesus poses this question to his disciples, there's some drama here. Do they see? Do they get it? Have, has the veil been lifted from their minds, from their eyes? Do they know who he is? Who do you say that I am? The you is Emphatic. Notice Jesus has never told them specifically, explicitly in, those, in that language. Jesus didn't gather his disciples when he first called them together and said, Listen, guys, I just need to let you know I'm the Messiah. He never did that. I'm the one promised from of old. Uh, I, I've come. I'm here. You guys just need to deal with this, but that's who I am. He never, he never did that. Why not? Because they, w- they couldn't handle the truth, They had to see Jesus in action first. They had to to see his power. They had to be brought to this by degrees. If Jesus would have just started out when he gathered his disciples initially with that message, they would have thought he was delusional or that um, they would have imported all of their false uh, ideas of what the Messiah was about. They would have imported that all to Jesus. They didn't get it yet. They weren't ready for it yet. They couldn't handle the truth. And so they had to, they, it took some time. It took now almost three years. But now Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? Has the light broken through? And by the grace of God, it has. Peter, bless his heart, nails it. You are the Christ of God. And Jesus rejoices In this, in in Matthew 16, 17, we see uh, Jesus rejoicing, "'Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, "'for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you "'but my Father who is in heaven.'" The light has gone on, Right? Truth is broken in. God the Father has revealed to Peter and to the other men the identity of Jesus. He is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah promised of old, the Redeemer of sinners, the Savior of the world, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then you have this amazing uh, thing that comes next. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. Don't, Don't tell anyone. Now, that, that seems strange. Why would Jesus, now that they get it, now that the light bulb has gone on, why would he say, don't tell anyone? Well, the, the answer is that even though Peter's confession is God-given and absolutely true, he doesn't actually understand all that he's confessing yet. He gets Jesus' identity as the Son of God, the Messiah of God, but he doesn't understand Jesus' mission, his purpose And so Jesus immediately begins to teach them about the nature of his anointing. Yes, I am the anointed one, but you need to understand the nature of that anointing. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Can you just imagine if you're the disciples and Jesus has asked you this question and you got it right, Peter, got it right, and Jesus praises God. It's a good moment to be a disciple. It's an astonishing thing. Now we finally got it out in the open. Jesus is the Messiah of God. The kingdom of God is here. This is awesome. And she says, don't tell anybody because this is what's going to happen to me. It's a stunning thing for Jesus to say. The, The disciples had to be absolutely dumbfounded. Why is he saying these These incomprehensible, awful things. So it's not a surprise for Peter to say, Lord, stop it. Stop it. That's not going to happen to you. You're the Messiah. I just told you, you're the Messiah of God. Stop talking like this. Every one of the disciples were thinking it. Peter just says, right, the, the thoughts just come out. It's, it's just pure, simply inconceivable, it's incomprehensible that these things would happen. In fact, they don't believe him. It's just as if the words just, they, they don't. Jesus, after, after all that they had seen him do, the idea that Jesus is going to be rejected by the, the leaders, the religious leaders, I mean, even if they would reject him, the crowds love him. The crowds, once the crowds understand who he really is, I mean, they're going to they're gonna install him as king immediately. It's just impossible. Do you understand that their Jesus was too small? Their Jesus was a Jesus that was a combination of biblical truth and their own misconceptions, miscom- mis, uh, their own... Um, what they were thinking, hoping, dreaming. Their Jesus was too small. He was, he was the anointed one. They understood that. But the full glory of Jesus is not just that He is the anointed Son of God. The full glory of Jesus is that He is the anointed Son of God, chosen by God to be the atoning sacrifice for sinners. That's the glory of Jesus, that He is the unbelievable manifestation of the Father's love for sinners, that He will send His Son, His only Son, whom He dearly loves, to die for rebels and prostitutes and tax collectors. So when John sees Jesus, what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the glory of Jesus. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That, when, you, when you ask that question, you're starting to sense the weight, the significance, the majesty of Jesus Christ. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is all affirmed and asserted by the Father. It's a vital event in Jesus' ministry. Again, you've heard the story how many times, but can you just put yourself in the shoes of Peter and James and John? All they know is that Jesus invited them, and only them, on the mountain, they were going to go and have some time to pray. This was not unusual. And during the prayer meeting, they dozed off. That also was not unusual. But it's late. It's been a long day, undoubtedly. And so they're dozing, they're heavy with sleep and the next thing they know somebody nudges the other guy and they wake up and they see unbelievable things. They see the face of Jesus has been transfigured. It it it's his appearance has been altered. It's Jesus, but it it's 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 different. It's gloriously different. There is there is light emanating from the body, from the person of Jesus. His clothes are dazzling white, difficult to look at. It's like trying to look at the sun. You just can't can't stare at the sun. That's, That's what's emanating from the body of Jesus Christ. And he's standing there just glowing with glory, and he's talking to Moses and Elijah. That's what they wake up to. That's going to blow some circuits. They are not prepared for this vision. They're not prepared for this sight, this reality. We're told that, that they kept silent and told no one in those days of what they had seen. Unlike today, people rush and they, they uh, publish a book of things they do not know of what they're speaking. These guys don't whisper a word. Why not? Why not? Because who in the world is going to believe you? I mean, seriously? Yeah, we were sleeping, and we woke up, and Jesus was glowing like a light bulb, and he was talking right there, Moses and Elijah. <laughs> okay, yeah. And then you woke up, right? No, I'm, I'm serious, we saw it. They didn't whisper a word to this. No one would believe this. Moses and Elijah? Moses, the leader of God's people of old, the one who led them in, through the Red Sea, the, I mean, the giant of Old Testament history, and Elijah, this, this incredible prophet of God, you're telling me that you were with Moses and Elijah on that mountain? Yeah. See, it's... I'm not going to talk about it. It's too much. It's impossible to describe this because they don't have categories yet. So so what is this about? What's what's going on? Why is this happening? Well, you see what's going on here is a window is opening into the other realm. It's like a wormhole into a parallel universe. The reality of eternal things is breaking into their perception. The things that are not seen are momentarily seen, manifest to the human eyes. They see things as they really are. They saw Jesus for who he really was. They saw glory. Do you remember that Jesus was, we're told in Isaiah 53, that he was was not attractive. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He he had no beauty that we should desire him. And so as Jesus lives his life, he he is God in the flesh, but it's, it's, it's God in hidden form. And even though the things that he says and the things that he does are, are amazing manifestations, and yet if you look at him, he's just, he's just this probably homely Jewish rabbi. He doesn't, he doesn't look like the Sunday School Pictures. He has no former beauty. It's hidden deity in that sense. And yet now when they when they look at him, it is sheer. Beauty, just magnificence, just glory, just majesty, brilliance. The truth of his deity is spilling out. This blinding glory radiating from his glorious self. They see who he is. truth. They see spiritual reality as it really is. You know, they, they believe in the realm of heaven. But the realm of heaven, suddenly there's a window open and heaven in that sense comes to earth and they see the spiritual truths that they'd always believed, but now they're seeing it. Moses and Elijah are standing there talking with Jesus David Gooding says the effect of the transfiguration was to convince the disciples beyond any shadow of a doubt of the real existence of the other world, the eternal kingdom. Our world is not the only one. There's another. Friends, we live in a secular age where everything from from your television shows, your movies, from everything that matters and is valued by our world, it all screams there is not another world. And this breaks into that secularism With devastating impact. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. It is real. We don't see it with our eyes, but it is more real in the sense than the world in which we live. C.S. Lewis, I love he calls this the Shadowlands. This is the Shadowlands. The ultimately real things are the things. That are all around us. You see, our our world is ripe with eternal things, inhabited by spiritual beings, caught up in divine purposes. And no matter how much the secularists want to scream it's not true, it is true. The transfiguration proves it. And the transfiguration finally points to the nature of Christ's anointing. They're talking to Jesus about his departure. The word there is exodus. Moses talking to Jesus about his exodus that he's about to accomplish. What Exodus is? Well, of course, it's, it's the Exodus of leading God's people out of the bondage of sin and death and condemnation. Jesus leading his people into the promised land of all of God's blessing, all of God's favor, all of God's riches, all of God's glory forever and ever. Jesus is going to go and accomplish this by his death on the cross. What a magnificent discussion that must have been. As the The Bible says that the prophets and the men of old longed to look into these things, and now they can. Now Moses and Elijah have the opportunity to talk to their Savior, their master, Jesus Christ, King of kings, and they get to talk to him about the cross and what he's going to accomplish on that cross. What an amazing, amazing scene. And then, to top it off, the Father arrives with this announcement. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's a staggering announcement. The one who is to die is the very son of God. This is my son, my chosen one, chosen from before the foundation of the world, chosen to be a mediator, an advocate, an atoning sacrifice for sinners, chosen to be your righteousness and your peace. The father says, listen to him. What do you think he's trying to communicate? What do you think the father today wants you to hear? What does he want you to know? He wants you to know that he loves his son. Don't mess with Jesus. This is my son. The father is dead serious about this. This is my son. He loves his son. He delights in his son. He delights in the obedience of the son, that the son was willing to be obedient even to death on the cross. But notice he also wants you to know that he loves sinners. This is my chosen one. Chosen for What? chosen to die for sinners. The Father is communicating that He has chosen this one for a very specific redemptive purpose, that this one, the very Son of God, is the one that He chose to send into the world to crush bearing the sin of men. Isaiah 53 again. It pleased the Father. It was the Father's good pleasure to crush him, to put him to death as he bore our iniquities. The Father is communicating that he desires sinners, rebels, tax collectors, and prostitutes, and people like you. He desires you to be saved. He chose his own son to die bearing your Guilt, your crime, your sin, he chose Jesus to do that for you. And the Father then offers this incredible invitation. Listen to him, this command for salvation. Listen to him. If you do not listen to this one, you will die in your sin. But the Father takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that men should turn and repent and and believe and be saved. Listen to Jesus. And so Jesus comes and says in John chapter 10, My sheep, they hear my voice. They listen. They follow me. Friends, God is speaking in His Word. Jesus is addressing you in His Word. What does Jesus want you to hear If you are unconverted today, Jesus wants you to hear that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but but by me. Do not think that because you go to church, do not think that because you've been to Sunday school, do not think that because you believe various religious things about God that you have access to the Father. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you've not knelt before him in humility, in repentance and come to him with a saving faith, friend, you do not have access to. To the Father. Listen to him. He means it for your eternal salvation. Why would you die? Why? Why would you die? If you're unconverted today, the Father is calling you. Jesus is calling you to salvation, to life. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But you must confess and you must believe or you won't be. Listen to him. If you've professed to be a Christian but are living for yourself, Jesus wants you to hear, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I tell you to do? Why do you say Lord, Lord, and then just ignore me? Jesus calls you to repent. Calls me to repent, right? That's what he's calling us to do. Every day, repent. The foolish man heard the words of God, but did not do the words of God, and the fall of his house was very great. Jesus calls you and me to repent every day. Don't say, Lord, Lord, and then just live your life as you choose. Listen to him. If you're struggling today with fear and anxiety and weariness and you're in your fight with sin and just the trials of life, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe that. Take that. Listen to him. He promises to give you rest. He promises that his strength is sufficient for whatever you're going through. He promises that his grace is sufficient to cover all your sins. I've been in conversation with a friend recently who just has having such a difficult time to believe that the grace of God actually covers his sins. And all I know to say is Jesus said it. Jesus said it. Listen to him. Listen to him. Friend, what is Jesus saying to you today? Where do you need to listen to this one, this chosen one of God, this very son of God? Where do you need to hear? Where do you need to listen? Where do you need to respond? Don't harden your heart. Don't turn away. Don't despair. Jesus Christ, the son of God, has come for your everlasting salvation. Jesus Christ has come for your joy and your peace today. Hear me. Jesus says, and live. Let Jesus become magnificent in your mind, magnificent and glorious and beautiful to your heart. And listen to him. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, we desperately need Jesus to be magnificent. We need Jesus, Lord, to be enlarged in our hearts and minds. We need to read, Lord, the circumstances of our life under his sovereign goodness and grace and power. We need, Lord, to hear his warnings. We need to hear his promises. Oh, Father, I pray that you would convict us of our, our small Jesus, our, the Jesus that we've grown comfortable with, the one who serves our interests, and that we would come awake to this the true Jesus, the awesome, glorious, magnificent Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who gave his life for sinners like us. May we gladly bow our knee and serve him and love him and obey him, believe in him. May Jesus truly be our life. And Father, we need your help. We need the Holy Spirit to do that work. We cannot do it on our own, but I thank you that that spirit has been poured out. Lord, move mightily in the lives of your people. Give us the faith that we don't have. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. But Lord Jesus Christ, do not leave us in our apathetic state. Do not leave us in our unbelief. Give us the eyes to see. Give us the ability to, to believe and to know that this Jesus is our Jesus forever. Oh, God, give us that grace. In his name we pray. Amen.